0: Let us pray for the preached word. Father and our God, we ask that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive the word that is put before us. I pray that you would give strength to our pastor through trembling lips as he gives us the word that you have proclaimed, that you would strengthen him and take his words and have them take root in our hearts. Is your name I pray, Amen. again to the third chapter of 1 Timothy. You might also wish to have a finger in Titus chapter 1, just probably in your Bible not very many pages over to your right. As <clears throat> so we consider our continue our study in the officers of the church and the qualifications and duties of officers within the church of Jesus Christ. We've been giving our attention the last two sermons, of course I was out last week, but the The two previous Lord's Days, we looked at the call of a pastor. Paul begins his statement in 1 Timothy chapter 3 with the one, the man who desires the office of an overseer, aspires to a noble work. So we've looked at both the inward calling, that subjective sense of God is calling a man to the gospel ministry, and also the duty of the church and the church alone to examine externally that call, what we would call the outward call or external call of a minister. So we've considered those things, what to look for, what, how does the church fulfill this duty now is the question before us. We saw from the scriptures that, that a man is called to the office of elder, pastor, bishop, overseer, those are all synonyms, by the Spirit of God, by the risen and exalted Christ, through the person of His Spirit, And and we also saw from God's word how the church is the unique, the only authorized agent to affirm or confirm outwardly that inward call. There's no other institution on the planet that is authorized to do that. No mission society, no denomination, no parachurch group can, can do what God has given only to the church to do. And now we think about it this way, just as as a farmer's responsibility is not to make a seed grow. No farmer can make a seed grow. But it is his duty to pile the ground, to water it, to plant the seeds, and prepare his his fields, pray for growth. And and by analogy, it is not our, our job as a church, in a sense, to manufacture pastures, to create them. There is no elder tree out back where we go and pick elders or deacons off of a tree. But we believe the Lord has made a promise to his church not to leave us without the sufficient resources, without the gifts that we need to do to to obey the commission that he's given to us as a church. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, "As, "...as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose." The apostles put forth this this notion, this doctrine, that God is still sovereignly, thoroughly, justly, graciously ruling his church. In 1 Peter 4, verse 10, Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks, oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and forever. Amen. So how do we, as Christ's church, perform our duty to affirm elders that Christ has called and equipped to oversee his church? Or to put it another way, how, how do we fulfill that obligation as a church body to perform the duty of an external call? what do we look for? Well, we're not without answers from the scriptures. We have in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and in Titus chapter 1 beginning in verse 5, two parallel passages that give us a description of what a church ought to look for in its qualifications of a pastor. So that's the term, that's the title of today's sermon, the qualifications of a pastor. Now you may recall that we're working now in this this short series, we're working through kind of a four-point outline that's going to take multiple sermons to accomplish. And there are four Cs. So a little bit of alliteration for uh, memory's sake. Calling, character, competence, and confession. We'll be looking today at those two middle Cs, character and competence. Character and competence. So what is a church to look for? As we think about um, the praying for, and, and identifying men that the Lord may have called to be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ, those two categories will be helpful to us to consider, character and competence. Next week, we'll look at confession. What does a man believe? What, what is he able to teach? So I'm going to read, together, or read today from 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's, it should be a familiar text by now. We've read it a couple weeks in a row, but I want to read it again. It's, it's important for us to think about it in these particular, under these particular headings. Think about the, the nature of the character described, and think about the competence. What are the gifts, what are the skills, what are the abilities that Paul says an elder must have? Here now, this is the word of God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. He desires a noble task, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Or if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's think about, in the first place, then, the character that's necessary For an elder, we must note that the men considered for the office of elder must evidence Christ's calling in particular outward ways. And the first that we see from the apostle, the first outward indication that a man is in fact called to the pastoral ministry, is that he meets certain moral character tests. He says an elder must be. Now, something we need to note here: there's a couple things I want to note at the outset. If you read through the list, these are not extraordinary virtues. There's nothing extraordinary about any of them. Is it extraordinary that a man is not violent? Is it extraordinary that he's not addicted to wine? Is it extraordinary that he's not uh, given to, as the King James says, filthy lucre, you know, dishonest gain? That shouldn't be extraordinary. And sometimes, though, we can think about this as if we're looking for a Superman. We're looking for somebody with a red cape flapping in the breeze. That isn't the case. You know, the, the, the National Football League every year, I think it's in April, I don't remember the dates, or, but it's, they do it, they call it a combine, and they bring in athletes that are, that are college athletes from all over the country, and they measure everything. They measure how fast he can run, how tall he is, what's his weight, how long his arms are, the size of his hands, how, how long he can jump, how high he can jump, and they are literally looking for men who are head and shoulders above the rest. They're looking for a different class of man altogether. I mean, most of us in this room, we could show up with a combine and we would, well, we'd be laughed at. We we wouldn't measure up, quite literally. We would not measure up. And sometimes we can think about these character qualifications as if it's a combine. As if we're looking for men who measure in extraordinary ways, like they're some sort of freakish athlete in character in, 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 in measure of character. That isn't the case here. These are absolutely ordinary characteristics for a Christian. But importantly, they're the characteristics of a mature Christian. And so that's part part of what Paul means later on when he says, not a recent convert, not someone who's, who's not had time yet to be sanctified to a certain degree in the truth. So let's don't think of these things as extraordinary. Again, every mature Christian ought to be these things. But he says, for an elder, it must be the case. It must be the case. These character attributes really should apply to every Christian man. In fact, every Christian. But an elder must be. And the other thing that we have to keep in mind is only one man has ever, ever, ever been perfect in these matters. There's only one who's ever been perfect. Our Lord Jesus Christ perfectly demonstrates his faithfulness and his fitness, his exclusive fitness for the office of prophet, priest, and king. No human being since him has ever fully and perfectly satisfied these character qualifications. So, brothers, as you think about your, your, yourself and any humble man is going to look at these things, and, and, and if anybody says, oh yes, I rate myself as an A-plus in every one of these, well, he's automatically disqualified himself, hasn't he? All of us, brothers, would look at ourselves honestly and say, I see in myself where I fall short. Even if you look at something like drunkenness and say, well, I've never touched alcohol in my whole life. I can't be a drunk. Are you intemperate in other things? I've never taken a sip of alcohol, but I can't pass the chocolate cake, or at least can't pass the third piece. You know, are, there, are there other things in which we are intemperate? So if we think of these, these as, as, a, as a composite sketch of a man's character, not an exhaustive list, but a composite sketch. So here we have the proverbial ditch on both sides of the road now as we think about the character necessary. On the one hand, we can fail to take these matters seriously, not give any evaluation at all, and and bring men into office that are not fit for it. They're not qualified. Their character is not of sufficient maturity to handle the demands of the office of pastor-elder. But on the other side, we can become so hypercritical and we can understand these attributes to be some sort of extraordinary measure in such a way that no man would ever qualify. You see where we can go wrong on either side. You're reasonable people. I know that you can. May God grant us discernment and grace together as a church as we think about these things. Now, the very first thing that we see, and Paul gives us sort of this overarching umbrella statement, a man must be, an overseer, and again, overseer, pastor, elder, bishop, those are all synonyms. I'm using the terms interchangeably. An overseer must be above reproach. And it's at this point that we're tempted to to be more critical or more scrupulous on these things than the apostle is. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, I think gives a, a helpful... Uh, Flushing out of this term. He says, the word used in the original literally means not to be laid hold of. Hence, irreprehensible or unassailable. Enemies may bring all manner of accusations, but these charges are proved to be empty whenever fair methods of investigation are applied. With the church and in accordance with the rules of justice, this man not only has a good reputation, but deserves it. So you hear the difference? It doesn't mean that no accusation has ever been made. I mean, the reality is, if a man, look at our culture, if a man is faithful in the gospel ministry and faithful to declare the whole counsel of God's word, do you think he's going to have some enemies? Do you think there's people who are going to say some things about him that aren't nice? Of course. So it's not the case that there's someone somewhere who doesn't like him, or there's someone somewhere who thinks he's been too harsh, or he hasn't been strong enough. It's that a fair and just measurement would not stand the test of biblical scrutiny. Secondly, we're told that he must be the husband of one wife. And this is perhaps the the one phrase in the qualifications that has been most controversial throughout history. And I'm I'm a little perplexed at that. I don't think it really ought to be very controversial. Again, Paul is writing about character qualifications when he says this. Literally, the phrase in the Greek is a one-woman man. He must be a one-woman man. So some have suggested, well, Paul's writing against polygamy. Well, that that can't be the case because, again, for the ordinary average Christian, polygamy would not have been tolerated at that time. It could mean, some have said, well, it means only one wife. He's the husband of one wife, which means not two, but also not zero. So that would exclude a widower. It would exclude someone who's single. Of course, that can't be the case. The Apostle Paul himself was a single man, and was a pastor. But it also would exclude someone who has no children or only one child, because it says, let his children be in submission. That's plural. So does he have to have He has to have at least one wife and two kids? No, that can't be. Paul's not speaking numerically here. What he's saying, and I think the language in our confession of faith is helpful, no more than one wife at the same time. So that means it doesn't exclude someone who's a widower who's been remarried or lawfully divorced and remarried. But that question always comes up, what about divorce and remarriage? And the short answer is, Paul's not talking about that at all here. Paul knew perfectly well the words for remarriage and divorce, those aren't used here. He's speaking about a man's character. What what is his bent? What is his orientation? Is he, by means of his character, observably a one-woman man? Or is he the kind of guy that you know, he's a flirt. Or he's inappropriate with his relationships with women. Is this the man in, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul says that, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. Is he the one who understands the relationship with an older woman in the church, a younger woman in the church, and treats them as mothers and sisters in all purity. So the answer to the question is, does divorce and remarriage... Is that what Paul's talking about? I think the answer is no. That's not what he's talking about. But he is speaking about faithfulness. Relational and sexual faithfulness within his marriage. Then we have a cluster of terms that come after this. Is the husband of one wife, and it says sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable. Those four terms go together and reinforce one another. To be sober-minded means to be temperate, self-controlled, prudent, respectable, hospitable. Again, these these are terms that describe a man's character. What what is observed about his demeanor with his brothers and sisters? What is observed about his demeanor even with those outside of the church? Does he demonstrate a a level of self-control, a prudence, a temperance? Is is he the kind of man that that people look at as and say, yeah, he's he's sober-minded. He's serious about his faith about the implications of that faith in this world? Or is he a frivolous man who doesn't take things seriously? We're also told, again, these are not extraordinary virtues among a Christian, among Christians. It says also he is not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Think about the the life of the church. Uh, Many of you have been members not only of this church, but other churches. You know that in the life of a church, we we still have the remnants of sin remaining in us. There are all all kinds of opportunities to have those sins provoked in us, aren't there? An elder must be the kind of man that's not provoking those temptations and sins within himself or those around him. To be a drunkard, uh, to be controlled by substances of one kind or another is to demonstrate a lack of self-control. It's to demonstrate um, an openness to a temptation that would render him uh, either unable or diminished in his capacity to shepherd others in those same areas. And then Paul pairs this with the idea of, of gentleness. He says he's not to be a quarreler, not pugnacious, not a brawler, some translations would say, but instead gentle. Now, this requires some clarification, and especially in, in a culture that, frankly, has been utterly feminized. We have this idea of weak men as gentlemen, and those are not the same thing. Those are not the same thing. We need to understand that the gentle is related to the concept that our Lord gave to us in the Sermon on the Mount of meekness. In the Old Testament, it was said of Moses that he was the meekest man alive, which means he was readily willing to see his own faults and stand in the strength of the Lord. You know, sometimes we have this idea that, that meekness or gentleness is weakness, so you imagine you 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 have a little kitten, and you know this little cute cuddly kitten. We say, "Oh, it's it's so gentle." No, it's not. It's weak. That's not gentle. That's weak. But imagine a four hundred pound lion that's been tamed that sits and rolls around with his master. That's gentle. I saw a video several years ago. It was a man actually in Russia who had from Birth had raised a grizzly bear cub. And the video shows this bear in this man's house sitting on the couch next to him. This is a 600 pound bear. And then they're out in the yard, frolicking around the grass, rolling around together, wrestling. Well, that's a picture of gentleness. The bear outweighed the man by more than three times and was far, far more powerful than he was. You know, some of you are horsemen, you, you, you ride horses. And look at a horse. I mean, an ordinary quarter horse could be easily more than 1,000 pounds, and yet a young girl can sit on the top of that, and with just a gentle nudge of her knee, a gentle pull of the reins can direct that horse. That's gentleness. Strength under control. See, John Calvin said, A pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep, and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. See, we're not looking for weak men. We're looking for gentlemen. You see the difference? Strength under control. Not quarrelsome. Is this a man who's contentious? Is he, is he just looking for an argument? And, and we've probably all known men like that. Sometimes we've been lo- men like that. We're just, I'm just looking for a scrap. I'm just looking for strife. And there seems to be in, in his wake, there's just controversy and strife that seem to, to follow him, To seem to mark his life. Or do we assume a man where there's a pattern of peacefulness around him? Even when there's disagreement, there's a way to deal with that and do so peaceably. In, in Sunday school this morning, we were looking at, we started a new series on our confession of faith and looking at the, the letter that was originally attached to our confession, written by the editors of the confession in which they describe their earnest desire to be at unity even with other churches and other men with whom they had profound theological differences. For those who have been persecuted because of their desire for believers only to be baptized, to state publicly their earnest desire to have a unity of mind and heart with those who practice paedobaptism, baptism for example. And, and to say, we, we, we want to see them growing and walking in holiness just as us. So there are men who can have disagreements and do so peacefully and peaceably. Not quarrelsome. He's not a lover of money. Again, the the King James, I think, has it just in a very colorful way, not guilty of loving filthy lucre. This idea of dishonest gain. Throughout history, there have been uh, not a small number of men who have entered into the gospel ministry because it appeared to be an easy way to make a living. This is not the kind of man that a church ought to look for. who's just in it for the money. Or, and I think this is um, increasingly a concern just in, in my own thinking about this, there's a desire to use a church as a platform to build one's own personal brand, whether it's social media or the conference circuit or books and other things, and to use the ministry as a platform. I'm not saying it's wrong to, to sell books or have a speak at a conference. I, I would never say any of those things. But there is in some, a desire for their own popularity, their own glory, their own material gain. Not a lover of money. Does he demonstrate in his life a a general contentment with what he has? And whether that's in financial terms or in other ways, is there a general contentment that's observable? Paul says, also not a recent convert. Well thought of, by outsiders. Why do you think Paul would say this? Why is it important for a pastor, for a potential elder, to have a good reputation even among pagans, even among those outside? Well, hopefully we can see that the Great Commission is to preach the gospel to those who are outside, to preach the gospel to those who are inside the church for their edification and sanctification and preservation to glory, but also to preach that same gospel to call men out of darkness. And into light. George Knight, in his commentary on 1 Timothy 3, makes this helpful observation. He says Paul is concerned that those who may judge less sympathetically, but perhaps also more realistically and knowledgeably, will render a good verdict, both from the perspective of their own consciences and also from their awareness of the particular man's commitment and consistency in terms of his Christian faith. Is he in their eyes above reproach from these perspectives? And do they, albeit grudgingly or in opposition, render that testimony? So in other words, let's say, we, we, let's say we, a man who says, I'm called to the ministry. In the churches, we, we see gifts. He's, 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 he's a good teacher. He's a good preacher. And in the process of due diligence, we call and talk to people that he works with, his business partners, his customers, his employees. And they say, "He is not, does not have a good reputation. He is unjust in his business dealings. He's cruel in the way that he deals with his employees. He's harsh in his treatment of them." Uh, I had a, We had a knew of a pastor, an elder at a church years ago, and he was a construction superintendent, and uh, a man who worked for him and with him on the job site testified that he was not a godly man at work. And that in that industry, you had to be the meanest guy on the block. And he said, he was. That's not the kind of man that a church ought to look for. And so that's why Paul says there has to be a good reputation, even among outsiders. Now, they're going to criticize him. They may disagree strongly with what he believes. But what they build on to say, even if it's begrudgingly to say, yeah, but he's the best employee we've got. I wish we had more of him. I wish we had more like him in terms of the way he treats his coworkers, his customers. Our vendors and other business relationships, Paul's concerned that those those must be true so as we think about character uh, how do we how do we pray for this as, as a church how do we pursue wisdom one let's don't think of the list as exhaustive and and I tried to imagine a situation where there was a character defect that wasn't specifically or explicitly listed here and a situation where someone would say, well I mean whatever character defect it has, Paul hasn't explicitly listed it here, so he's probably still qualified. Well, I couldn't even come up with an example as I thought through it all week long. I couldn't come up with an example where that would be the case, but let's just say hypothetically that uh, you know Mr. X says, I want to be a pastor. I think God has called me to this. We see he could teach well. He could use it, but he, he, He's clear. He's faithful, but we see this deficiency in him. But it's not explicitly spelled out. How do we, how do we handle that? we need to understand these character qualifications as a composite sketch. It's not an exhaustive list. It is, is in the spirit of what he's given to us here in the scriptures through the Holy Spirit Will we find someone who says, I, 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 I meet most of these qualifications, but some of this is a glaring deficiency. In the parallel text in Titus chapter 1, Beginning of verse 5, Paul says, This is why. He's writing to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, see it's the same phrase, the husband of one wife, and his children. And the ESV is not helpful here. The ESV says his children are believers. That's we'll get that in a few moments, but that's that's not a helpful translation. His children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Will we as a church uh, commit together uh, to pray. Uh, Our Lord has commanded us to call upon the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for that harvest. Well, we commit to pray as a church that God would indeed raise up men among us who have a desire to serve the Lord and His people by proclaiming the gospel of His Son, by proclaiming the full counsel of God's Word, and that God would work in us and among us to establish sound moral character among all the men of GFBC Conroe. And certainly among those who would desire to preach the gospel. So we need to understand character. The second thing that we need to consider is competence. A a man can be a, a prince of a man, godly in his character, but he doesn't have the necessary skills. He doesn't have the necessary gifting to teach and to preach the word of God. So men considered for the office of elder will further evidence Christ's calling. Again, these are evidences. These are fruits of Christ's calling upon them. They will further evidence Christ's calling of them by demonstrating competence in the use of the gifts and graces that the Lord has supplied to them, for the oversight and especially for the instruction of His church, to the glory of God. Let's not overlook what ought to be obvious to us as the first measure of competence. Think about competence in, in, in any field, in any in any discipline. There, there is a, a, a necessary degree of competence that must be present. If you wanted to go and, and, and audition for the Houston Symphony Orchestra, there would be a necessary minimum level of competence on whatever instrument you played in order to be selected. You may not be the first chair violinist, but you've got to be able to play uh, the requisite symphony pieces. Does a man who desires the office of overseer, first of all, does he have a demonstrable... Observable love for the bride of Christ and for his people. I mean, the first area of competence must be a, a demonstrated faithfulness to the people of God and to the, to the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul used an analogy in Ephesians 5. And we're going to work the analogy the other direction. But in, in there, Paul's comparing our earthly marriages to the mystery. Paul calls it a mystery, something that was previously veiled under the old covenant and now has been brought to light in Christ that all along God had designed the institution of marriage to be a living, breathing, three-dimensional picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church, and for the church's joyful, humble submission to her husband and head. I'm going to work the analogy the other direction. If we say, if a man says he loves Christ he loves his Savior, but that has not been worked out in a demonstrable display of his affection to the bride of Christ, then we have reason to suspect that his love may yet be immature for the bride of Christ. So we have to ask questions like this, how does a man demonstrate his love to his own wife? This is not a pop quiz, brothers, Just, but how, how is it manifest and obvious that a man loves his wife? How does a man demonstrate his love for her? Well, he spends time with her. He speaks kindly of her and to her. He finds her to be a natural priority to him, not, not someone that he just attends to when it's convenient. He says, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. I, I, I love her. I want to give myself for her. As Paul goes on in Ephesians 5 and develops that analogy, he doesn't say to a husband, love your wife as if she's kind of like your body. No, love her because she is, in a real mystical sense, your body. To love her is to love yourself. And so for, for a man who says, I'm called to be a pastor, does he consider the church of Jesus Christ to be a blessing or a burden? Does he consider serving God's people to be something that he has to be sort of coaxed or persuaded into doing, or is he eager to sacrifice for the bride of Christ? Does he seek out voluntarily, unprovoked, uncoerced opportunities to serve the Lord's church and to love his people? And, and that's of course, is measured in some very obvious ways. I mean, first of all, attendance. I mean, a is, is, husband can't really say, I really love my wife. I mean, we don't really see each other very much i don't spend i intentionally don't spend time with her in fact i avoid that if i if i can or i find every easy excuse to avoid time with my wife you would have a reasonable suspicion do you really love her as much as you say you do is there a faithfulness to serve does does this man put the needs of the body ahead of his own what's his track record with previous churches is there a track record of 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 strife and conflict, or is there a track record of joyful cooperation and eager service in those previous places? Is, has he demonstrated a willingness to endure hardship and even inconvenience? Is he willing to invest his time and treasure into this? Because we can't think that, well, he's not really doesn't really have a track record, but if we put him in office, I think he'll come around. That would be unwise, wouldn't it? Just, just as a young man, and I, I had a, a, a young woman, this is not in my notes, a young woman several years ago that she was telling me that, that the, the young man that she was seeing was saying some pretty unkind things to her. And telling her, you know, you're, you need to be at the gym, you're putting on a few, and you need to do And I said, look, if in the stage of courtship he's treating you this way, you need to not walk but run away. This is not the kind of man who's going to cherish you and treat you well. So in, in marriage we recognize that. If, if he's kind of a jerk during the courtship, that's supposed to be the best side of him. In a similar way, if a man shows no real love, no, willing, no willingness to sacrifice himself on behalf of the church of Jesus Christ when he's not an officer, do you think magically making him an officer will just create that in him? That's not the case. So what skills then? That's, that's the first in terms of competence is, is a demonstrated love tangible expression of a love for the body of christ for the bride of christ but what are their skills what are given to us in the scriptures what comes to mind do you think to most christians when they contemplate the skills and abilities and gifting necessary for pastoral ministry let's kind of think through the the man on the street exercise again just go to some big christian conference or gathering of some kind and put the microphone what do do you think the skills necessary for a pastor well, I did a fun little exercise this week. I looked at job postings, not because I'm looking. I looked at job postings for senior pastors, lead pastors. <laughs> and you'd be amazed. And I, I'm not going to read one in particular. This is sort of a composite. But each one of these, I'm reading verbatim from, from postings that I found. One, cultivate innovation by being a student of the culture and understanding the need for risk to reach them. I don't know what that means. Strategic and entrepreneurial thinker. thinker action-oriented, yet reflective. Creativity to envision new possibilities for the ministry of our church. Ability to think strategically about opportunities and challenges. Skills to recruit, lead, and manage church staff and effective ministry team to fulfill the mission of the church. Business experience or acumen to oversee church resources and assets with assistance and participation of church leadership. The goal, here's... The goal of the, next, of the right next leader would be for them to have the strategic acumen of an executive with the heart and ministry instincts of a true pastor. They will have a deep understanding. These last three are my favorite. These are, these are from the same posting, these last three. One, they will have a deep understanding of the systems, processes, and personnel it takes to build a dynamic ministry ethos and serve as a trusted and valued extension of the leadership team. Secondly, a a church sponge. I'm not making it up. The ideal candidate will be someone who has their pulse on what's working in church today. They will also have a tendency to think outside the box and not be afraid to approach ministry in a way that will be sure to resonate with the world we live in. Thirdly, a best practice ninja. Yet, yeah, I'm not making this up. The ideal candidate will be someone who has seen it done really well. They will naturally listen to and learn from thought leaders and ministry innovators as they help build our largest campus. What saith the Lord? What, what does the Lord say are necessary skills? Really, there's two. There are two. Now, these skills are multifaceted, meaning there's there's multi-dimensions to this. there's, There's various ways we need to apply them. And they're also progressive, meaning the young man doesn't show up on day one being really mature in these skills. Just like the young husband is learning. He's a godly man, he's a faithful man, but he doesn't know much yet. He's still growing and learning, isn't he? Those of you who've been married 10 or 20 or 30 years can testify, you're still learning. And the pastor who's been in ministry for 10 or 20 or 30 years is still learning and growing. But what's the trajectory? You know, we've told our daughters for years when they think about a young man as a potential suitor, what's the trajectory? I mean, if we're going to put it on on data points, can we see that there's actually progress? And can we reasonably think that if we continue that line, that, you know, you mathematicians, that linear regression, that we'll actually see a reasonable expectation that he's going to be at, at a higher point today or or tomorrow than he is today, five years than he is today. The Bible requires two skills and two skills alone. Leadership in his household and the ability to teach. That's it. Again, those are multifaceted, meaning there's multi-dimensions to each of those, and they are progressive. He's going to grow in his skills and abilities there, but that's the two categories of skills that are required. He must be able to manage his own household, and he must be able to teach. Now, what does Paul mean by these things? First of all, he says, and you'll notice, if you are paying careful attention as I walk through 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, you'll notice I skipped a couple things. As we look at the character, he says, able to teach. In 1 Timothy 3, that's in verse 2, able to teach. In Titus chapter 5, or t- Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, he says it this way, verse 9 he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So in order for a man to, to give, to manage his household well, Paul uses two different words, manage, which means oversee, but also care for. And it's important that we don't detach those two words from one another. It's possible to manage something and care nothing about it. Many of you know that that position well in your employment. Uh, I don't really, I'm not all that personally invested in this, but I'm going to manage it well. I'm going to demonstrate a competence and a faithfulness, but I'm not, you know, exceedingly joyful at the end of the day with what I've accomplished, but I can manage it well. But for a husband, for for a potential elder, he must be able both to manage his household and care for it. Both words are important to round out the whole function of the pastor, shepherd, overseer. He must be able to lead and rule and govern and oversee, but also exercise a compassion, a tenderness, a gentleness. A man who rules with an iron fist and keeps everything in order by fear, by intimidation, rather than humble service, does not meet this standard. I mean, it's possible to have a well-ordered home, and everybody is scared to death to cross dad or to cross her husband. Is there a a willingness and an ability to lead, to persuade, to teach and instruct in such a way that a wife is eager to follow, that children are eager to follow? On the other hand, a man who may may be just as sweet and kind and gentle to his children, he may cherish his wife, but it's obvious that he's not governing his home. He's not leading. He's not teaching. He's not instructing. So on either side, again, we have that potential error. We have the guy who's got the iron fist and everything is, I mean, kids line up every morning at 4.30 a.m. when the bugle blows and they all salute and ready for inspection, and there's no love, there's no care. On the other side, everybody's happy, everybody's joyful, and he's not in charge. He's not running anything. The home is the most important testing laboratory for these skills. And I've become more and more persuaded uh, now with almost a decade and a half of ministry experience, I'm, I'm more and more convinced this is more than just a qualification as an entry point into ministry. It's the continuing education module. For a man to have the ability to shepherd his wife through the ordinary seasons of a marriage to learn how gently to confront a wife in her sin and to be able to persuade her to look to Jesus and to see that it's that it's safe, it's, it's, it's 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 right for you to confess your sin, and know that I will deal gently with you. And on the other hand, he's willing to have his own sin confronted by someone who is in a subordinate position to him, and deal rightly with that. When she says to him, "Honey, I need to speak with you about some things that you've said or things that you've done," and does he respond graciously, gently to her rebuke of him? If he can't do that, how is he going to do? How is he going to survive in pastoral ministry? So it's an important continuing education and, and laboratory for skills as, as his children grow. If he has children, the opportunity to, to lead them to Christ and to pr- apply the gospel inevitably when they sin and stumble. Is he able to do that? And, and he will grow and, and mature. And, and, you know, uh, Andrew, a couple of years ago for Christmas or birthday, got one of those rock tumblers. We've seen those where you, you take these jagged rocks that you find out in the woods and you put them in this tumbler and you put a, a certain amount of grit in there. And it just tumbles for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then you pull them out, you rinse them off, and you put a finer grit, and you tumble it some more. And this goes on for months. But at the end, this raggedy, sharp-edged, rough rock comes out smooth and shiny and polished and beautiful. Men, your homes do that to you. Christ will use your homes, use your ministry to your own wife, if you have children to your children, to accomplish those things in you. With those rough edges the harshness that that naturally comes, will be whittled away, smoothed away in in sort of the tumbler, if you will, of family life. Again, that's not to say that that a man must have children, that he must have a wife. But to whatever degree he has, he must manage those well and demonstrate a a fruitfulness and a faithfulness in that sphere. Again, in in Titus chapter 1, Uh, The ESV unhelpfully describes it as believing children. Um, There's an older literal translation, it's referred to as Young's literal translation. It says, having children steadfast, not under accusation of riotous living or insubordinate. That's a much more helpful, especially as good Calvinists, we can't say that any man is responsible for his children coming to faith. He's responsible for presenting the gospel to them, pleading with them to turn away from sin and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ but he can't create faith in them. It would be an unreasonable burden. and Paul's not placing that burden on any man, certainly not on a pastor, that his children must believe. But are they in subjection? Can they be justly accused of riotous living? Paul asks this rhetorical question. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? How will he manage God's church? He's arguing from the less to the greater. If, if, if you're, you know, home of three or four or ten, or whatever that number is, if you can't get your arms around that, how are you going to love and care and oversee another household, a bigger household? In 2 Timothy, that's exactly what Paul, or in 1 Timothy 4, that's exactly what Paul refers to this, is the household of God, the church of the living God. So, if if a man is, is put forward, nominated, being considered by the church as an elder, would his children be surprised by that? Would his children maybe secretly think, they don't know my dad? Or would a wife, would a wife say, he's led me carefully and gently, not perfectly, but gently? Instructed me in the scriptures. Encouraged me in my weakness. Offered me the hope of the gospel when I was faltering. Gently corrected my sins. Rebuked me when I needed it. Or as a wife, said, ah, that's, the church doesn't know my husband in the way that I do. So we have to ask the question, what about a man who has adult children who are wayward? I think it's a question that's worth asking. The answer is not as simple as we might think sometimes. The important principle we see in the Old Testament, we are each responsible for our own sin. We are each responsible for our own sin. So the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Ezekiel 18. It's a well-established principle. A father is not directly responsible for the sins of his children or Children responsible for the sins of their father. But We also know that fathers, mothers too, can certainly contribute and can provoke sins or enable sins within their children. So in Ephesians 6, for example, right after Paul deals with marriage, he turns his his lens directly to a man's relationship with his children. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. The standard for all of these matters is, is, again, it's above reproach. Is, is, Is a man blameless in the matter of his daughter's rebellion? Not blameless, absolutely, but can he be legitimately charged with neglecting his duty as a father as the cause of his daughter's waywardness or the cause of his son's rebellion? Has he neglected some duty as a father and contributed to or provoked the sins of his son? George Knight, again, there's a a helpful insight. He says, although the word translated children here can be used as an adult, the qualification in submission indicates that the children in view are those under authority and therefore those not yet of age. So how do we think about this? How do we think about a man who has adult children who are rebellious, who are wayward, who've rebelled against the gospel, the fact that a man has such a, a son or daughter as an adult that's not walking with the Lord does not automatically exclude him. But I think it's wise as a church for us to ask questions, for us to come alongside in, in the spirit of Christian sympathy and charity and ask a brother, are the things that you did or did not do that have led to this? Can, can we ascertain that? We might not be able to get a clear answer, but we, we, we have to ask those questions. It's not an automatic disqualifier. I mean, even our Lord, think about this, even our Lord had one of his 12 rebel and betray. Even our Lord had one of his, the men that he personally discipled for three years who rejected him. So it cannot be the standard that if there is any waywardness anywhere that it's automatically his fault. Sometimes parents have been faithful, not perfect, but faithful. And yet children rebel. They deny the gospel and they walk away from the faith or they never embrace it to begin with. But that's the first skill. The first area of competence as we think about men who say, I want to, uh, I think God has called me to be a pastor. We must consider first of all the competence of a man with respect to his oversight in his own home. And of course, we know this applies to deacons as well. The same characteristics, same qualification is given there. But the next competence, the next skill, the next ability that's given to us in the scriptures is the one that distinguishes a pastor in terms of his qualifications from a deacon. And it is what Paul calls the ability to teach. Next week, our focus will be on the content of his teaching. This week is that he must be able to teach. In Acts 6, the apostle said, we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer they recognized this was the priority that Christ himself had given to them. And because that's the priority, they have to be able to do that. They have to show an ability and a skill in order to do that. In 2 Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says, what you have heard from me, speaking to Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Are there faithful men in whom you can trust this good deposit, these teachings that you've heard from me, and that they can not only Embrace that themselves, but teach others also. In 2 Timothy 2, or 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. See, it's a command given to Timothy. Well, he can't, he can't obey the command if he doesn't have the ability to do this. And of course, in Titus 1 9, I read a few moments ago, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So this fleshes out and gives us a better or a more full definition of what Paul means in 1 Timothy 3, able to teach. What does that mean, Paul? Well, here's what it means. He must, first of all, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. It means he has to be willing to receive and be instructed himself. No man has ever been a good teacher who's not willing to be instructed first. We are not called to be innovators. We are not called to be uh, pioneers in terms of doctrine. We are told to receive the apostolic instruction and pass that on intact to the next generation. So it demonstrates a humility to be instructed. But then positively, a man must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He must be able to teach affirmatively what the scriptures teach. But then he also must be able to rebuke or refute those who contradict it. He must be able to spot errors and say this is contrary to the faith once delivered to the saints. And he must be able, again, with gentleness, with a sensitivity that's appropriate to be able to contradict that. He must have, as Calvin pointed out, know when to use which of the two voices. Is this a sheep who's confused and kind of wandered astray and needs to be exhorted and encouraged to, to eat in the right pasture? Or is this a wolf that needs to be rebuked and knocked over the head? Again, these characteristics must be understood in light of of variety. Not every man will have the same degree of gifting or the same kinds of skills in teaching. One man may be perfectly comfortable speaking to 10,000 people, and the other one is is better suited to ministering in, in a counseling room or in a smaller group setting. Both of those are able to teach. Both of those can can rightly divide the word of God, give instruction in sound doctrine, and refute those who contradict it. But it's a different skill set. Perhaps he's able to do both. Perhaps one of those men or both those men is not comfortable in the other realm. So there's a variety. There's also a progression. You know, as as we hear, and I hope to hear more and more of, of our seminary students and other young men who are just getting their legs under them, and they stand in the pulpit for the first or second or tenth time, and, and they're not quite as sure yet. Their legs are not quite as stable. Will we be patient as a church and bear with them, pray for them, rejoice as we see their growth? These gifts are progressive. Paul souls to Timothy to devote yourself to these things so that all may see your progress. And that's, that's a great encouragement, that in the work of, of the ministry there will be growth. There's also It's humbling because in order for a church to see a man's progress, What do they have to have seen first? His deficiencies, his weaknesses. And that can be humbling. Can a man teach and lead others beyond what the writer in Hebrews 5 called the elementary principles, the ABCs of the gospel? Is he able to take them farther? Not all elders will be gifted in the same way or to the same degree. I mentioned, uh, I think in the last message, in Acts chapter 18, uh, Luke uses this superlative language describing Apollos, a man who was mighty in the Scriptures. He was eloquent. He was powerful in his preaching. Well, not every man, very few men, in fact, throughout history can have that set of them. But is he faithful? Is he competent? We already have a chief shepherd, so we're not looking for faithful men who, who have kind of created some sort of prototype. We already have the prototype. We already have the great shepherd. We already have the high, the high priest. We already have the king of kings. But we need our ordinary and faithful men. Is that he wondered that Paul, when contemplating these things, just kind of exclaimed, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for them? We're looking for a man who has a demonstrated love of the church of Jesus Christ, who has a proven track record of managing his own household, who has a demonstrated ability to handle the Word of God, rightly to divide the Word of God in such a way that God's people grow in sound doctrine, grow in their understanding of the things of God and the doctrines of the Scripture? Is he able to, to protect a flock from error and to identify errors that, that are infecting a congregation? And we saw last time, 1 Timothy 5, there, there's, there's a warning to a church, not to be hasty in these things. To observe these things properly takes time. It takes opportunity, and it would be unwise, and and even acting contrary to the Scriptures, to rush that process, to rush a man forward into the office of an elder. But at the same time, we ought to take courage. We ought to be encouraged that sometimes that gifts that accompany a call to ministry are not obvious right away. They take, time to take, they take some time to take root and grow. And so a man who may not wow you the first time you hear him teach or preach, don't dismiss him right away. Consider, is, is, look at this, the character in his life. Is he, is he demonstrating faithfulness in these other areas? Well, then be patient and allow time for those, those gifts to bear fruit. So may we desire together as a church to seek the mind of Christ on these matters. May we seek to be faithful to our shepherd, our great shepherd. May we seek to grow in our unity and our understanding of how Christ has ordered his church. We are to do all things for his glory, all things decently and good order. And that's what Paul said to to, to Titus. I've left you there in Crete to put what remains in order. It was a mess in Crete. And God had designed for elders to be part of the solution to putting things in order. Our Father's desire, as we've seen, is to see all men saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he has ordained the preaching of the gospel as the primary means of calling men out of darkness and into light and of sanctifying his people according to truth. So you will you seek in your own lives to make your own calling and election sure? As we think about the character qualities that are necessary. Again, these must be true of an elder, but they ought to be true of every one of you. They ought to be true of every one of you. Are you willing prayerfully, to make your own calling and election sure. For those of you who are here today, who who are outside of Christ, who don't even understand the implications of the gospel in your own life, may I say to you that the gospel that, that a pastor is called to proclaim must be believed. You must hear it. You must believe it. Christ has died and rose again on behalf of sinful men because every one of us is born in condemnation. Every one of us is born under the judgment of God, the just judgment of God for our sin. And unless, Paul says, unless one is sent, how will they hear this great gospel, the good news that Christ has reconciled sinful men to himself, through himself to God the Father? Will you embrace this Savior? Will you you fall upon your, your face and ask for his mercy to save you, to reconcile you to God? Brothers and sisters, will you commit to pray? For the church not only gfc conroe certainly here as well but other churches as well pray that god will call faithful men to the office of elder i've mentioned this before but it, but i think it, it bears repeating as we as we pray for and want to see other churches established and we want to see missions take place in in faraway lands we want to see churches established on our own soil money is never really the gating issue finding a place to meet really isn't the biggest burden the number one restraining issue in the planting of churches is called and affirmed faithful men. We we need to pray and commit ourselves to persevere in praying as a church that God would indeed raise up men to preach the gospel in this generation and in the generations to come. Pray that he will govern his church according to his promise to provide the resources, the local oversight that's that's necessary. And we pray that the Lord will give wisdom to all of us as we seek to be faithful, uh, as we seek to call upon Him uh, to provide for us uh, men who will preach and herald the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful that... You have ruled and governed in such a way that we have your word given to us in written form, that we have your spirit sent by the Father and the Son to indwell us both personally and corporately. We pray for the wisdom of your spirit. We pray for the conviction of your spirit. We we know that all wisdom begins with the fear of our Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would grant to us the grace to fear you Uh, to desire to see your name declared among the nations. We pray that you will indeed raise up workers for the harvest. We pray for Montgomery County, for Conroe, for the Woodlands, for Willis and Montgomery and all the towns around us, that you will raise up faithful men, faithful churches, faithful church members, that the gospel of your Son will be proclaimed far and wide. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.